The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So, Lord, as we hear those words read, uh, it resonates in our hearts. We see, we see the brokenness of sin, the curse of suffering all around us. So, Lord, this morning as we look at your word, I pray that we would we'd get a, a look into the, the genesis of sin, shame, and the brokenness that comes, Lord, that you'd help us see it and understand it, maybe even understand our own hearts a little bit more. Lord, at the same time as we see the depth of brokenness, Lord, help us today rejoice at the depth of your mercy. The depth of a God who keeps coming for us. Who doesn't let us hide in our sin and our shame. But who calls us out and clothes us with his righteousness if we'll trust him. So Lord, work in us this morning what's pleasing in your sight. Lord, I pray that you would exhort us where we need exhortation. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Comfort us where we need comfort. And convict us where we need conviction. We trust the Holy Spirit through your word to do all this and more. And prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we've got to see over and over again this, this goodness and this greatness of God in His design of His world, His purpose for those made in His image, and the sweetness of God's people in God's place, enjoying God's presence. Right? Genesis 1 and 2 are really fun to preach through. <laughs> Just to, to hold up the goodness and greatness of God. But as Daniel just prayed, and as we've sung about, uh, that's not where we live today. We don't, we don't live in the garden before sin came. We live in a world where the nations are raging and the peoples are plotting. Right? There, there are wars, there's death, there's destruction, there's disease. Sin is legalized and celebrated. Morale and morality often seems low. Outrage and unbelief often seems high. There are politics and protests and pandemics interwoven in our own nation to create a sense of chaos and not peace. And even in our own family here, in this family, this church, we're experiencing all sorts of sin and suffering. And we should, we should grieve. <laughs> we should lament the sin and the suffering. We've seen our own amount of chaos and distraction and disunity that snuck in among us as the world spiraled the last few years, haven't we? We've, we've felt that even among us. And perhaps most close to home, we know, you know yourself more deeply than you know anybody else, and we know the sin that still lives in our own hearts. The sin that still tempts us to turn away from the living God for our joy and our hope and to turn to all sorts of other identities, all sorts of other indulgences to fill the space in our hearts, just longing for comfort. I just, just want comfort. just want rest. And our hearts are so prone to wander towards other identities and 
idolatries that we think will fill up that empty longing space. And so today, we're going to look at the genesis of the chaos of sin and shame. Let's get this first-hand picture of why is the world the way it is? Why is the brokenness as deep as it is? Why is the, the pain and the suffering as deep as it is? And at the end, we'll look at the genesis of our great salvation and satisfaction in Jesus. Why is Jesus as great as he is? Why is the gospel such amazing news, the only remedy for this broken world that we live in? I want to say two things. Genesis is real history. So this really happened. We're not telling fables. It's real history. And yet the way sin enters and distracts and distances and causes disobedience has repeated itself ever since then. And so we ought to see this as a historical account that explains our world, but also to see it as a paradigmatic account that explains our own sinful impulses and idolatry. In other words, this is real history, and yet history has repeated itself day after day after day until today. And so as you, as you listen in here to the serpent, as you listen in to, to Adam and Eve and their responses, see it as a glimpse into your own heart. See it as a glimpse into your own soul, the inner workings of your soul and how you're prone to wander And let that cause a gratefulness for the the gospel and the transformation that comes from it rise in you. So point number one, let's dive in here. Distorting and disobeying in verses 1 to 7. So look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We could preach a whole sermon on this verse and all the stuff surrounding it. But I just want to note here that the father of lies, the devil, the one personified here as this serpent who is showing up here in the garden is created. It's got to note that he's created. He's not equal with God. He's just a creature. He cannot challenge God. However, he is real and still seeking to cause havoc like we see here. And from the first verse in the Bible we see him show up, it says he's crafty. He's crafty. He's, he's going to come at you. He doesn't have any new tricks, but he's going to keep trying to be crafty. Kids, I just want to talk to you for a minute because I remember learning about Satan when I was little and sitting in church, and I remember feeling so afraid. It's like, he's crafty. And he's going to sneak up on me. And Satan is our enemy, and he does want to trick us. And we need to take him seriously. Sometimes in America, we don't take him very seriously at all, but he's real and he's crafty and he's our enemy. But what I want to say to you at the very beginning, kids, is that God is so much more powerful than Satan. And if you trust in Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of Satan. You want to take him seriously. No, he's working. He's trying to trick you. He's trying to make you disobey your parents. He's trying to make you get away with that lie. He's trying to do all that stuff to draw you away from God, but You don't have to fear him if you trust in Jesus because Jesus has paid for your sins and Satan has no power over you anymore. So what does Satan say? He enters the scene and what does he say? Look at the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We already know this answer, right? We read Genesis 2. Is that what God said? What Satan just quoted? No. That's not what God said. God named one tree they couldn't eat from. One. They could eat from all the rest. Right? God had given them abundance and dominion and complete delight in a perfect place to enjoy each other and enjoy Him. Right? Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they're not lacking at this point. And they know they're not lacking because they're living in the place, enjoying God's presence, enjoying one another. So what is Satan doing here? Well, he's just beginning to distort God's Word. He's crafty. He's framing it like a question. Just want some information here. Just want to know what what God told you. What, What was it that He said to you? He's trying to plant seeds of doubt and dissatisfaction. Right? Is God, is God really that good? D- does God really care for you? Or is he kind of harsh and overbearing? Like, why do you want to live in a place where he just tells you what to do all the time? Right? We've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 just the goodness and the abundant greatness of God's word in creating. He created all these things by his word. We've seen that he wants those created in his image to live in fellowship and worship with him by simply obeying his good word to them and spreading his image. And so Satan knows to win this battle, what does he need to attack? The word of God. You're going to see this echo throughout Genesis 3. Adam listened to the, the voice of his wife instead of the Word of God. We're going to see this interplay with the Word. Satan is attacking at ground zero, which is the Word of God, which creates life, which sustains life, which is for the good of his people, and Satan's trying to make them doubt it. Listen to verses 2 and 3 where Eve responds. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve starts out well. She says, no, it's not what God said. We can eat of all the fruit of the trees except for one tree. She's right so far. But then she adds to God's word. She adds to it. She says that they can't even touch it or they'll die. Did God say that? Did God say that in chapter 2? No, he said, don't eat it or you'll die. In other words, God was not a harsh taskmaster watching to see if they ever got too close to the tree while they were in the garden. Right? Watching to see if they accidentally brushed up against it or, or knocked one of the fruits off the tree. Satan distorted God's word and now Eve has too. And notice... Right, that maybe like a good Baptist, Eve actually was more strict than necessary. Right? She's going to add rules to protect herself from the rules. And this is, just a, this is just a good lesson for us. Extra rules and extra standards, they don't lead to obedience. They don't lead to God honoring. Right? Often we do this, but it leads to faulty thinking. Right? Think of the area that you're, you're just most tempted towards sin. You're most tempted to run away from God. Aren't you most tempted to build up extra rules and extra laws to kind of build a fence around yourself? But does it work? Or is there a moment where you're like, I'm doing good, talking down the serpent, 
right? He's not going to get to me. I'm going to build an extra wall, start to be puffed up, then all of a sudden what happens? You fall. It's all in your own strength. It's all in your own power. These kind of mindsets, what they do, they seem good in the moment, right? Asceticism seems good in the moment. Legalism seems good in the moment. But what it begins to do is build up walls of prohibition in our minds that make God's word into something it's not. God becomes overbearing and burdensome and controlling in his commands. We move from seeing his commands as a pathway to life and joy and peace to seeing them as death and burdensome and fearful. And that kind of view of God and of obedience will never lead to life or obedience. <laughs> never works. Just begins to make our hearts cynical and distant from the goodness of God. Right? Just builds this relationship with our Father that He has never put in place. We're putting it in place. Listen to verses 4 and 5. I think Satan knows that he's got her right where he wants her. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. Right? So when we build up these walls, distance, careful, super careful, what do we want? Relief. <laughs> Let me out. Don't put me under this burden. So what does he start with? You're not going to die. It's okay. Just feel the sense of relief for a moment. It's going to be okay. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is now just a direct lie and assault on the goodness and greatness of God. No more subtlety at this point. Not only is Satan planting seeds about God being overbearing and harsh, but now God is selfish and God is prideful. Satan senses her heart and latches on to her misquote and attacks God's word all the more, trying to grant her a sense of relief and a sense of ownership. You, you know better. Of course you know better. He's making God out to be a manipulative, selfish, power-hungry kind of king. So just, just think about the shift that's happening. Rather than feeling the privilege of dwelling in the presence of their creator at perfect peace and the privilege it is to be made in his image and spread his presence and reign. Like, think about that. You guys were just created. Like, you didn't exist a little while ago. Here you are in a perfect place in his perfect presence, enjoying each other, enjoying him. What a privilege. How good is this? And suddenly, it's not enough not enough. They're discontent. They want to be God. They want to make their own decisions. They want to rule their own lives. Why does he get to tell them what to do? And I think if we're honest, we felt these things at times. Why do you get to tell me what to do? This is, I would say, the root of idolatry. And the scary thing is that it's an idolatry of self. Which means that we just carry this thing around with us all the time. <laughs> An idolatry of self. It's a prideful self-exaltation that believes we know better than God what will make us happy. We deserve to do what we want and when we want it. I mean, this is the air we breathe. In one sense, it's kind of this new expression of it in our culture. In another sense, it's kind of been around a long time. Like since the very beginning. Right? This is the air we breathe. It's on both sides of every ideology. 
we'll tell you what will make you happy. We'll we'll get you the control. We'll get you the power. Here's the promises we can hold out to you. Right? It dresses itself up as something new, but it's very old. It dresses itself up as revolutionary and enlightened and healthy, right? I mean, how backward and bigoted and unhealthy do you have to be to think obeying some book of old words from some old deity will bring you happiness? Isn't that the air we breathe? And it starts right here. Kids, do you ever wish you were the boss? Do you ever think, I wish I got to make the rules around here. Do you ever wish you got to do what you wanted, when you wanted. Kids are not making as much eye contact right now. (laughs) That's okay. I'm trying. Of course you do. Of course you do. And so do your parents, right? We're humans in a Genesis 3 world. This desire, this lie, this distraction is strong. It's it's at the core of, of being a prideful human being. And Adam and Eve, we see, take the bait like we often take the bait. Look at verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sometimes you hear all this fruit just looks so delicious, so good for food, and then just the extra temptation on top of it is what really made it go over the top. I think the author wants us to see explicitly that the one reason Eve ate of this tree was her desire to be like God. That's why. It's not all the good looks of the tree. It's not all the the tastiness. It's her desire to be like God. And why do I say that the author writes it this way on purpose that we see that? Well, look at Genesis 2, verse 9. Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up what tree? Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree. (laughs) Same words. Every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. Every tree was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. All, look at all these trees. They're, they're all pleasant. They all look good. They're all going to sustain us. Not just this one. The only difference with this one was it was desired to make one wise. That's why she eats. She takes and she eats. And she gives some to her husband who is with her and he eats. And their eyes are opened. Right Before they only knew good, And now they know good and evil like Satan promised. Unfortunately, it's their own evil that they know. But you'll know good and evil. That sounds fun. Till you realize that the evil that you know is your own evil. They realize they're naked because evil has entered the world and they're ashamed. They've separated themselves from the goodness and greatness of sweet, obedient fellowship with their Creator. So they they try to sow fig leaves together to cover up. Notice a couple things. First, notice Adam was with her. The text says it explicitly. When the snake 
was talking to them, the you he kept saying was a y'all. It was a plural. He's talking to both of them. Even though he's more directly engaging Eve, I think, on purpose. He's directly engaging Eve on purpose because he's reversing the creation order that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. It was Adam's job, the man's job, to cultivate all that was good and to keep out all that was bad. In other words, he should have stepped in and reminded Eve of their mission together to guard this place. Right? Like, baby, no. (laughs) We're not going to do this. We're not going to go there. Remember, we have this mission together. This is so good. Let's do this together. Instead, Satan turned around God's order in his creation design, and man was passive instead of protective, and woman became a hindrance instead of a helper. So Satan's going right after God's design and after God's word. Second, notice the reaction. Immediate guilt. Just immediate guilt. And they should have felt guilty. (laughs) They were guilty. And then what comes after the guilt? Shame. And and I would just say they should have felt ashamed. In fact, I would still say that we, and again, they could do a whole other talk on misplaced shame and misplaced guilt, those are bad things. But actually, guilt and shame are gifts. (laughs) They're gifts from God to say, you're not walking with me anymore, and I'm going to help you feel that so you can start walking with me again. Right? All sorts of misplaced guilt, misplaced shame, but guilt and shame, when rightly exercised, we are guilty. And the shame that comes is meant to reorient our hearts and go, that wasn't good. And those things come right away. No more naked and unashamed. Sin's broken their fellowship and their partnership. Sin's broken fellowship with God. So maybe the question we could ask them and ask our whole generation is does the instant gratification, the freedom of self-indulgence, and this newfound control bring them deeper joy? Does it deliver on its promises? And the answer is no, it brings guilt, shame, and the severing of all the shalom that they were enjoying. And here's what's interesting. We don't, we don't know if they, what, what would happen if they did this, but do they go to God to try and make things right and confess their sins? I just want you to notice this about sin. Right? When you first sin, is your immediate reaction to run to God right away? Maybe post-redemption with the Holy Spirit in us, it is. Praise God that sometimes that is our reaction. I've sinned, I'm going to draw near. But right here, shame makes us distance ourselves from God and others. It, it makes us hide. Right? It makes us get out our fig leaf sewing kits and try to, try to act like we can cover it up from the God who sees all things. So if you wonder, I mean, why, why doesn't the world get it? Why do they keep just trying to cover up their sin and keep trying to make their sin something it's not? Why don't they get it? Because this is happening over and over again. They don't know what to do with this shame. They don't know what to do with this guilt. And so they they cover it up and they, they celebrate it and they say it's not actually guilty and it's not actually shameful. Why? Because they're trying to run from God. This is their fig leaf sewing kit. And they can't see through it because they don't have eyes to see. Point number two, distancing and dodging. I think verse 8 is the saddest verse in the whole Bible, in my mind. Listen to verse 8. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, again, how far have they fallen in eight verses? The God who created them and loved them and longed to dwell with them is coming to be with them. Walking in this garden, they dwell in God's people, God's place, enjoying God's presence. And what do his people do? They flee his presence. Run away from God. They hide. Again, this is what sin makes us do. It makes us run away from the presence of God. Kids, have you ever done something bad and your parents found out about it? What do you want to do in that moment? You want to hide it, don't you? And try to make sure that they don't find out about it. Maybe try to cover it up and hide from them. Right? That—that's what's happening here. Have you ever had little kids? Right? When they—when they—when they're mad at you or they're frustrated with you and they don't know any better, they—they go like this. Right? Can't see me. It's like that's what Adam and Eve are doing. Right? They, They sewed fig leaves on themselves and they hid in the trees from the God who created all things. This is the sadness and the insanity of sin. This is the the little kidness of sin. Notice God calls to the man. It was his primary responsibility to love his wife, protect this place. And even though Satan turned God's order around, God is restoring it even in his fatherly discipline. He's going to come to Adam first. God knows and notice the love of God to pursue them. Right? God asks Where are you? I don't think God is confused. I don't think God's trying to figure out where they are. He already knows, but I think what he's doing is he's giving them the opportunity to draw near to him. Just just come on out. I already know. Come out from where you're hiding. Come into the open. It says that Adam heard him coming and knew he was naked, so he hid. Right? Adam goes, well, I heard you coming. Saw I was naked, so I hid, Right? Reasonable answer, right? Maybe God will stop asking questions. <laughs> Maybe God won't find out. Isn't that what we do? Like, this, this is just our sin on display, right? If I could just give a reasonable answer, right, just in my accountability group, just like talk about kind of the high-level stuff. Maybe people stop asking questions. They won't get all into my sin and my shame. I can stave them off a little bit longer. It feels safe. And then unfortunately, God <laughs> says, who told you you were naked? Right, this just reminds me of the woman at the well. He, he just goes right to her heart. Right to Adam's heart here too. Who told you you were naked? Did you do what I told you not to do? Right, so Adam's hiding and his fig leaves and his explanation haven't worked. Right, he, he can't quite outmaneuver God. He's caught, so what's left to do? And then an idea comes to his mind that woman, right? Actually, God, it wasn't me. Right? It's like this dawning <laughs> comes on him. It wasn't me. In fact, it was that woman that you gave me. Well, that's going to work. Right? It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. And actually, it was kind of your fault. I mean, you're the one who gave her to me. Rem- remember, I mean, this, this is horrifyingly sad. Remember the end of chapter 2. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Right? No more power ballads in the garden. Right? No more love songs. No more poems. Just passive, aggressive, dodging and blaming and belittling. And I would just ask you and ask myself, have you ever talked this way to God? Talk this way to God. Right? I wouldn't have sinned if you had just changed my circumstances. I won't be so tempted to sin if you just made my life a little bit better, gave me some relief, made my life easier, maybe given me a few better people around me, God. It's really not on me. It's just that life happened to me and I couldn't do anything about it. Plus, look at all these messed up people around me. Right? They're posting crazy stuff on Facebook. Right? They're saying crazy stuff to me in the comments. Right? The, the, these people are crazy, God. I wouldn't sin if you wouldn't have put all these people around me or made my life so difficult. God then moves on and questions the woman directly. I think this is further affirmation of the dignity and worth of women and men together, equal in sight, equal in value. Male and female have equal dignity and worth, equal in God's mission. So even though Adam was primary in his role, Eve will bear responsibility for her sin and God talks directly to her. And she also shifts the blame, right? I mean, you can imagine, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, now she's getting all this garbage from Adam. (laughs) She's... She's in the spotlight. She's like, what's like I? I did it. It was a snake. It's his fault. And so instead of nearness and fellowship, there's now distance and dodging. This is what sin and shame does in our Genesis 3 world. Have you ever noticed that, that your sin that starts out in here, your ugliness that starts out in here, when then combined with shame and combined with all the ugliness of trying to hide spills out on other people? The world tries to avoid it by continuing the fig leaf sowing business and saying that sin should be celebrated and God should be ignored. That's the the world's way. And the distance gets greater. We try to avoid it by hiding it or being vague in our confessions of it. But God sees and God knows. Right? God, God doesn't bargain with us over our sin. God doesn't only go so far. He loves you too much to let you keep hiding. He loves you too much to let you keep sowing. He loves you too much to let you hide from him and not say, who told you that? You know better. You know what happened. Just come and talk to me about it. And amazingly, in spite of all this, God continues to pursue with love. He keeps coming for our good even when our good is just exposing us. This word that pierces through bone and marrow and exposes the intentions of the heart. Point number three, discipline and deliverance. So God responds to all this with discipline and curse. They have not obeyed and things can't be the way that they were. They followed the word of Satan instead of his word. God promised death and God keeps his promises and so this will lead to death. God starts by cursing the snake, verse 14, saying he'll now eat dust for the rest of the time. And I, I know some of you are a bit offended by my cat reference last week, but surely we'll all agree there's something holy about a healthy dislike for snakes. Right? So he curses this snake. And these snakes, they're on their bellies for all of eternity. We see that. He then curses the woman. Right? And notice he, he curses 
right where they're unique, <laughs> right where they would just feel God's pleasure. He, he, he curses the woman. There will be problems and pain with childbearing. And, and maybe we missed this, but that's a big deal because their mission was to multiply and fill the earth with the image of God. And now that very thing that is going to make that happen, what a privilege again, is now going to be cursed. It's going to be pain. She'll continually want to rule over her husband to reverse God's design, and her husband will respond with the same passive aggressiveness she just saw in him for the first time. This is a sad moment. He then curses the man, and all his cultivating of what is good, his work, will be cursed. Work's not bad. (laughs) Work's a good thing. They were working before the fall, but our work of cultivating and trying to bring into submission this world to create, to design, to exercise dominion will now be marked by sweat and thistles and pain and trouble, right? Whether it's out in the field or on the spreadsheet. It's going to be marked by this in our lives. In verses 22 to 23, If you look down there, we see that a cherubim with a sword is placed to guard the garden. He has taken Adam's job. Adam has been kicked out of his job. Adam was supposed to work and guard the garden. Well, now his work outside of the garden will be cursed, and the guarding has been given to another. So man and woman are cursed in their relationship, their work, They're guarding taken away and they're banished out of the garden to continue their existence somewhere else outside of the presence of God in this place he had created. It's all broken. All the goodness is undone. In fact, man and woman will continue to fight each other, partner together for evil, continue to want to rule their own lives and oppose God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and set themselves against the Lord and his anointed? Because sin has infected human nature of every person born since this moment. All sins inside of us and around us are just the same nature of pride and same acting out of pride that we see in Genesis 3. We're sinful by nature, and then we act out on that nature as we go our own way. With our prideful nature, our real guilt, and our real shame, and the brokenness we see all around the world, what hope is there? Well, there's hope. I want to read verse 15 and verse 21 together. So verse 15 is when he's talking to the serpent, which might be the last place we'd expect to find hope, but we see hope there. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jump ahead to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So again, these are real events that happen. Real words said, real garments clothed, but they're also foreshadows of something greater. Picture one of foreshadowing. God talking to the snake, and he says that the woman is going to bear an offspring. Satan will bruise his heel, a true, serious wound but the offspring will bruise his head. A mortal blow to the serpent. Bad news for the devil and good news for mankind. That's picture one. Picture two of foreshadowing, verse 21. 
God made them garments of skins and clothed them. Skins of what? I think they have to be animals. <laughs> I think, which means what? Something had to die. Right, something had to die. Death came, actually, immediately. Not for them. It would come for them ultimately, but it came immediately for these animals so that they could be covered. There had to be a sacrifice to pay for their guilt so that they could live and that sacrifice could cover their shame. Right, their nakedness was what they were ashamed of. And he makes a sacrifice. Death comes that their shame would be covered and their guilt would be at least put off a bit. These are real historical foreshadows of an ultimate payment for sin and covering of shame by the same offspring that would crush the serpent's head. So who is this offspring that will defeat the devil, pay for sin, and cover sin ultimately? Where I want to go to end this time is Revelation. So I'm just going to summarize. You can turn to Revelation 12, though. Daniel prayed this before, which is great syncing up. In Revelation 12, there's this vision of a woman giving birth to a child. Think offspring. (laughs) Think here's offspring coming. And a great dragon, think serpent, tries to devour him, but this offspring escapes and he's to rule over all the nations on the throne of God. Right, if we go, go to Psalm 2, which I've quoted today, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We'd see that the one who rules over all the nations is the anointed one, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And later in this story, in Revelation 12, the great dragon is defeated, and these are the words that are said to the saints. Listen to verses 10 and 11 of Revelation 12. Now the salvation and the power And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Really guilty, really full of shame. But by the blood of Jesus, when those accusers' words come anymore, you know he's been defeated. Jesus is my better word. His blood speaks a better word. Jesus is the offspring born to defeat the serpent. The devil bruised his heel, but he rose again to crush Satan's head once for all. He was born to save a people through his blood. Born to die that we might live. Born to forgive our guilt and cover our shame. Born to conquer that we might conquer with him through faith. The devil rages. Just a few verses later, it says he rages. Why? Because his time is short. His time is short. Jesus wins. He really came. He really lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He really died the death for sins that we deserve to die. He really rose again to conquer death. And he's coming back. And the devil's time is short. So he rages and he accuses. But you are safe in Jesus Christ. You're safe in him despite the depth of this brokenness. I mean, is there any part of Genesis 3 that you can't just identify with? Yeah, I do that. I run and I hide and I accuse and I blame shift and I eat the fruit and I go there again like a dog returns to its vomit. That's me, chief of sinners. And you hear the word is it doesn't matter about you. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? That's the testimony. 
his blood. Listen to the celebration of this again in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. As, as far as the curse went, so far do the blessings of the blood of Jesus go. Did you know that Joy to the World is a song about the second coming? Not the first coming? <laughs> Here's what Revelation 7, 9 to 10 says. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Isn't that good news? Our calling, therefore, is to make this message of the blood of the Lamb our testimony to the ends of the earth. To again, by the blood of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus, reflect God's image. Extend God's reign. And now we do it by proclaiming His redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect offspring who conquers sin, suffering, death, and the devil. So as you look around on this Genesis 3 world we live in, because we do live in a Genesis 3 world, as you look around, outside of yourself, inside of yourself, the brokenness out there, the brokenness in here, you can have a deep peace in your heart as you draw near to God that your sin is forgiven and your shame is covered. Completely. How much condemnation is there for those in Jesus Christ? How much? There's no condemnation. That is amazing. You can have peace. Jesus has come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And from that place of peace and rest that comes through the blood of Jesus, sins forgiven, shame covered, when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. From that place, you offer rest and you offer peace to a world that is raging and plotting. And you say, I was raging, I was plotting. Sometimes I still rage and I plot, but there's rest. There's rest in Jesus Christ. And one day soon, we're going to live in a Revelation 7 world. Not a Genesis 3 world. That's appropriate. It was good. Don't cover your mouth. That was great. Why don't you bow your heads and we're just going to pray for a minute. Lord, you are worthy of our every woohoo. You are, Lord. You have, you've conquered sin and death. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you that now, by your blood, by grace, we get to come and eat and drink with you again. <laughs> Lord, there's a day coming where we're going to be sitting at the wedding supper of the Lamb, enjoying your presence, God's people, and God's place, enjoying God's presence again. And thank you for this morning. Thank you for this foretaste. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that shows us our sin and in our sin and our shame reminds us of the gospel of Jesus that forgives us and covers us so that even now we can draw near. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the table right now, if there are any in this room that haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation, to pay for their sins and cover their shame, that they would trust Him now. And Lord, for those of us who look at the world around us and look at the sin inside of us, Lord, I pray right now we would come and lay all of our sins and anxieties and worries at the foot of the cross. And we trust You again to forgive our guilt, to cover our shame, to quiet our fears. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.